Welcome to our first episode of Conductive Discussions, a Ropes and Gray podcast series focused on legal issues of interest to the semiconductor industry. My name is Mark Rowland, and I am a partner at Ropes and Gray in our IP litigation practice based in our Silicon Valley office. I will be hosting this episode. With me is Matt Rizzolo, an IP litigation partner in our Washington, D.C. office, whose practice concentrates on ITC investigations. Matt will be sharing his thoughts on recent FRAN developments that impact supply chain and global patent licensing practices. Hi, everyone. Also joining us is Dave Chun, an IP litigation partner in our Silicon Valley office, who will give us a few introductory thoughts about recent trends in civil and criminal trade secrets enforcement. Hello, everyone. We expect to dive more deeply into that topic in the near future. And we have with us Georgina Suzuki, an associate in our IP transactions practice, also based with me in Silicon Valley. Hello. Georgina will start us off with our Silicon Speak report of recent legal news. In stunning moves, German and Chinese courts in December granted American chipmaker Qualcomm injunctions against Apple, banning the sale of certain iPhone models in those countries. The decisions are part of a broader global dispute between Apple and Qualcomm, which began in January 2017 when Apple sued Qualcomm over its licensing practices. As part of such dispute, the U.S. International Trade Commission is also reconsidering whether Qualcomm's asserted patent is obvious and whether an import ban against iPhones would be appropriate. In addition, an antitrust trial against Qualcomm by the U.S. Federal Trade Commission is underway in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California over whether the chipmaker used its monopoly to force cell phone makers into unfair agreements. Expect more to come in 2019. In other news, an assistant attorney general recently revealed that the U.S. Department of Justice is planning to withdraw its agreement to an Obama-era policy issued with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office relating to standard essential patents. The DOJ plans to increase enforcement against manufacturers that use standard-setting organizations to coax favorable patent licensing terms from patent holders in exchange for having their technology included in an industry standard. The announcement is the latest example of the DOJ's new emphasis on protecting patent holders and cracking down on standard-setting bodies, which some people view as discouraging competition and innovation. Lastly, China recently announced an array of punishments that could restrict companies' access to borrowing and state funding support over IP theft. The list of 38 punishments comes as a concession from China in the larger trade war between the U.S. and China. Personally, if you ask me, I just wish forced listening of the song Baby Shark was on the punishment list. Getting Baby Shark stuck in your head might be really effective punishment. (laughs) (laughs) Back to you, Mark. Thanks, Georgina. Uh, Now we're going to uh, transition into our discussion about Fran. Matt is going to tell us about developments Uh, in that area in the context of supply chain and global patent licensing. Matt? Sure, thanks, Mark. The issue of FRAN licensing is seemingly always popping up in the semiconductor industry. And I'm going to talk here about a few recent FRAN cases and decisions of note. 
So a common issue in IP licensing is the question of where in the supply chain to license patents. For example, as a licensor, you often want to license as far downstream as possible in an effort to broaden your royalty base. A computer, a smartphone costing several hundred dollars, it's a more attractive base than a Wi-Fi chip, which costs less than 10 bucks. But by contrast, licensees often want to license upstream in the supply chain. A chip maker may find itself on the receiving end of numerous indemnity letters, um, so it may be more cost effective for a chip maker to contact the licensor and obtain a license on behalf of its customers. So this comes up in the context of that FTC Qualcomm case that Georgina mentioned earlier. Uh, Judge Coe in the Northern District of California addressed this very issue in the Fran context, and I think it's worth talking about. Now, this case stems from the wide-ranging global dispute between Qualcomm and Apple, but it doesn't actually involve Apple. The FTC is the plaintiff and Qualcomm is the defendant. Matt, can you tell us more about that FTC case? In June 2017, the FTC sued Qualcomm, alleging that Qualcomm's licensing practices for SEPs it owned relating to cellular communication standards violated Section 5 of the FTC Act and harmed competition in the provision of baseband processors and modem chips that enable cell phones and other devices to communicate with the cellular network. The FTC alleged that Qualcomm was refusing to license its SEPs to other chip suppliers, which are competitors with Qualcomm, and maintained ex exclusive dealing arrangements with uh, downstream handset companies, including one that the FTC considered to be a particularly important cellular device manufacturer. So we could guess who that may be. Uh, the FTC argued that Qualcomm's licensing policies were designed to prohibit these other chip suppliers from entering the baseband processor market altogether, enabling Qualcomm to maintain its position as the leading supplier of modem chips and compel cell phone manufacturers and other customers to pay allegedly excessive royalties for Qualcomm's SEPs. So Matt, uh, you're saying that the FTC um, wasn't licensing to its competitors, so what? The FTC was alleging that Qualcomm's decision not to license to its competitors was an unfair trade practice under the FTC Act based on Qualcomm's agreements that it had with two standard setting organizations that required Qualcomm to license its SEPs on FRAN terms to all applicants for a license. Now Qualcomm argued no, there was no requirement existing that required them to license to competing chip suppliers because these chip suppliers don't practice the entire relevant standards. Those standards describe the operation of a mobile device in relation to a cell network, not necessarily just the baseband processor operating alone. The FTC said, well, by declaring your patents essential to the LTE standard, for example, Qualcomm, you're required to license to all applicants under the relevant SSO IPR policies. And these IPR policies didn't limit this commitment to any particular type of product or particular company or level in the supply chain. So Matt, this is kind of a fundamental issue for all SEPs. What did the court decide? In early November, the court granted FTC's motion for a partial summary judgment and held that Qualcomm was in fact required to license its SEPs on FRAN terms, not just to downstream cell phone manufacturers, but to everyone, including their competitors in the chip making space. The court noted that 
in cases like the Microsoft Motorola case from the Ninth Circuit, the Fran promises had previously been characterized as very sweeping and applying to all applicants. And this was the same language at issue in the patent policies here. And the court also explained that the non-discrimination part of Fran prohibited Qualcomm from distinguishing between the types of applicants, an interpretation that the court determined was further reinforced by the respective SSO policy language. I don't recall hearing about a court addressing this particular issue before. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. This decision from Judge Coe seems to be the first one to expressly require an SCP holder to license its patented technology to its competitors and not be able to just pick and choose where to license along the supply chain. Now, I will note, and as Georgina pointed out earlier, the parties, FTC and Qualcomm, are currently in the midst of a jury trial that's scheduled to wrap up near the end of this month. So it's too soon to know whether this particular issue might be ultimately appealed to the Ninth Circuit. But if it's upheld, this is something that will present both licensors and licensees as well as their attorneys with some very thorny questions relating to global licensing practices, FRAN compliance, even royalty adjustment or patent exhaustion issues. Speaking of global licensing practices, I'm aware that there was a decision uh, from an appeals court in the United Kingdom recently in a case brought by a company called Unwired Planet, and that was against uh, Huawei that could have uh, major implications for global FRAN licensing negotiations. Can you tell us about that case? Sure. So Unwired Planet is a non-practicing entity, and it sued Huawei and several other entities in the UK, alleging infringement of about a half dozen telecom-related standard essential patents. Many of the parties settled, but Huawei did not. During the course of the litigation, Unwired Planet and Huawei engaged in licensing negotiations, made offers and counteroffers to each other, but no license was ultimately reached. So the case proceeded to trial, and the lower court found infringement by Huawei and issued an injunction. Uh, but because of some of the unique friend issues in play in the case, that ruling was stayed pending appeal to one of the UK appellate courts. So, Matt, what specific FRAND issues were at play? One of central importance here was the fact that Unwired Planet was attempting to negotiate not just a license to UK patents, but a worldwide global license that would cover all of its SEPs relating to 2G, 3G, and 4G standards. Huawei had objected to this and argued to the court that Unwired Planet didn't have SEPs everywhere and that really the court was only empowered to set a FRAN rate for the UK based on that geographic basis. The court rejected this argument and noted that licensing on a worldwide portfolio basis was common for SAPs and other types of patents, and that the FRAN undertaking under Etsy's patent policy, Etsy was the standard setting organization at issue in that case, had an international effect. This finding was specifically affirmed on appeal. The UK appellate court expressed concern that requiring FRAN licenses to be negotiated on a country-by-country -country basis would be more likely to lead to patent holdout on the part of implementers of the standard. They might simply decide to negotiate on, you know, just for UK patents and Germany patents, US patents, for example. 
So if I'm remembering right, there are some issues raised relating to the non-discrimination prong of FRAND, right? Yes, that's right. Huawei had also argued that the license rate offered to it by Unwired Planet was discriminatory, so it violated the non-discrimination prong of FRAND, because the global royalty rate offered to Samsung, another large telecom equipment provider, was much lower. The lower court judge agreed that Samsung and Huawei were similarly situated, but found that the specific circumstances surrounding the execution of the Samsung license made it not particularly useful as a direct comparable on which to weigh non-discrimination. This is an issue that the Court of Appeal dove into in a bit more detail on appeal, and it took a little bit of a different approach. The Court of Appeal decided that the transaction itself, rather than the circumstances surrounding the transaction, should be the focus of the analysis. In the end, though, both the lower court judge and the appeals court agreed that the non-discrimination prong of FRAND doesn't equate to a so-called most favored nation rate. There may be transactions where, for some reason, a patent owner might offer a royalty rate to a licensee that is lower than the so-called benchmark FRAND rate. But that doesn't mean that that patent owner would then be obligated to offer that low rate to all subsequent or even former FRAND licensees. Ultimately, to me, the major takeaway of this unwired planet case, both the lower court decision and the appellate court decision, is that a court, at least in the UK, is willing to set a global FRAN rate for a complex license involving multiple standards. Here, 2G, 3G, and 4G standards promulgated by Etsy. Well, thanks, Matt, uh, for telling us about the uh, FTC Qualcomm case and the Unwired Planet uh, Huawei case. Um, any other case you want to tell us about or relating to licensing? Yeah, there was a really interesting complaint, I think, filed this past week by Ublox, which is a fabulous semiconductor company. Uh, Ublox filed this complaint against the, another well-known non-practicing entity, Interdigital, who may be uh, very familiar to some of you out there. Ublox has brought some claims of FRAN violations as well as uh, declaratory judgment claims of non-infringement of a couple patents against Interdigital. Oh, I heard about that case. It was uh, filed in the Southern District of California, and uh, interestingly, that's where Judge Selna's landmark top-down FRAN decision came down. Is that a coincidence? Yeah, that's right. I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, that that last year, that decision came down in the Ericsson v. TCL case, and Ublox is represented here by the very same group of attorneys who represented TCL in that case. And TCL was the one uh, there who had sought that FRAN rate determination from Judge Selma. So here, in this case, Ublox is alleging that it is a ready and willing licensee, but that Interdigital is demanding unfair and unreasonably high rates, and that Interdigital is also discriminating against Ublox by demanding rates that are higher than those that are charged to Interdigital's other licensees. A lot of the complaint is redacted due to the confidential nature of licensing negotiations, so unfortunately many of the specifics aren't known at this time, but I would say this is going to be one to watch uh, over the course of this year and perhaps maybe even into next year. 
Ublocks included claims of breach of contract, promissory estoppel, as well as unlawful monopolization under Section 2 of the Sherman Act. And to tie things together to Unwired Planet, Ublocks is asking the Southern District of California to set the terms of a 2G, 3G, 4G FRAN license between the parties, presumably a global one. So we'll see if the Southern District of California agrees with the Unwired Planet. Well, thanks, Matt. Thanks for that interesting discussion of uh, FRAND issues. Um, Georgina mentioned earlier that China has recently identified what it called punishments for IP theft. Uh, Dave, I know we're going to dive more deeply into trade secrets in another episode, but you had some introductory thoughts that that were interesting about trends in trade secret enforcement, and that might also interest our listeners. Is there a rising trend in trade secret enforcement? Yeah, so in addition to the baby shark reference, I smiled when Georgina mentioned punishments for IP infringement in China. Ironically, China is one of the reasons why there's been a significant increase in trade secret enforcement in both the civil litigation and criminal prosecution context in the United States. This rise coincides with a number of factors, including one, a high degree of employee mobility in combination with the relative ease at which large volumes of information or data might be transported electronically. There's also been an actual or maybe just a perceived weakening of other forms of IP protection, including uh, patents uh, in recent days. And uh, you know, pertinent to China, uh, there has been a greater US government emphasis on protecting US developed technologies and domestic companies. Um, so for all these reasons, as a result, uh, there have been some really well-known companies involved in trade secret cases, both on the giving end and on the receiving end, including the likes of Uber, DuPont, Boeing, Tesla, and many others. Recently, and pertinent to the audience of this podcast, Micron was identified as the injured party in a highly publicized indictment by the Department of Justice in recent months. I heard about that case. That Micron case wasn't brought by Micron, though. Wasn't it brought by the federal government? Who else was involved in that? Yeah, Matt, so that's exactly right. So Micron was identified as the injured party, uh, but the indictment was handed down by the Department of Justice in the Northern District of California. Um, Micron, of course, is an Idaho-based technology company who's a leading supplier of DRAM, and the defendants or the alleged wrongdoers in this case included five different entities. Um, One state-owned entity uh, in China, a Taiwanese corporate entity, and as well as three individuals who previously worked for Micron. Uh, The allegations in the indictment uh, were that these individuals stole trade secrets from Micron and brought them directly to uh, competitors in China. So Dave, was it unusual to go after the employer in such a case? Yeah, not at all. Uh, In Micron, in particular, we see allegations of misappropriation that were allegedly sponsored or otherwise encouraged by uh, the Chinese or Taiwanese entities. But even in cases where the misappropriation might end up being the actions of a rogue employee, the injury to the original technology holder or developer is coming from the competitor in the marketplace. And there are a number of tools or legal theories that an injured party might utilize, but this is something that uh, we'll go into next time. Hey, Dave, uh, when I hear injury in the marketplace, I think about civil cases. Uh, Is there also an increasing enforcement trend on the civil side? 
So the short answer is yes, uh, absolutely. Um, more often than not, in these criminal cases, uh, there's going to be a corresponding or companion li civil litigation uh, brought somewhere at some time. Um, and I also alluded to earlier the actual or perceived weakening of other forms of IP enforcement, um, and in particular patent infringement cases over the years. Uh, but the opposite is actually true in civil trade secret cases. There's been a market increase in recent years. Uh, again, I think there are a number of factors, most notably uh, just a recent number of high-profile trade secret litigations uh, that have resulted in large awards or settlements. Uh, but more importantly, I think uh, there is the Defend Trade Secret Act, which created for the first time a federal statutory enforcement scheme for civil enforcement of trade secrets. It's now given greater predictability uh, to trade secrets uh, versus the old regime where you had 50 uh, not necessarily consistent uh, state jurisdictions for trade secret actions, uh, as well as the attractiveness of going to a federal rather than a state court. These uh, developments suggest more cases might be brought against bigger companies? Sure. So the size of the company matters in that um, for larger companies, obviously there's larger risk, uh, both because there's a larger number of employees who might leave or join the company, um, but also because they have greater interactions with third parties, including consultants, suppliers, manufacturers, what have you. Uh, and then, of course, there's also the appeal of a pretty large potential uh, for a huge damages award. But at the end of the day, I think the size of the company is not that big of a factor. Any company that has trade secrets that are stolen has little choice but to try and protect its trade secrets. Okay, I know we're going to talk about this more at a later date, but uh, at this point, you got any uh, takeaways for our listeners? Sure, just a few um, that I won't go into too, into too much detail. Um, first, you know, protect your own IP. Make sure your internal controls are robust, uh, both on the compliance and uh, employee training side, and uh, also, more importantly, I believe, uh, in the information technology and security side. Um, coupled with that is to avoid infection of your own products or your own developed technologies from third parties or uh, information that might be brought in by new employees. Uh, and finally, this might be painfully obvious, but today your IP assets are not just patents with ribbons or famous trademarks that everybody knows. Uh, think about trade secrets as well. Thanks, Dave, and Georgina and Matt as well for joining me today and for sharing these insights. Subscribe to Conductive Discussions and other Ropes Talk podcasts in the newsroom page of ropesgray.com. If you have any questions or comments, just drop us a line. For more information about our practice specific to semiconductors, just type semiconductors ropes gray to get to our semiconductors page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us next time. Until then, this is Mark Rowland, Georgina Suzuki, Matt Rizzolo, and Dave Chun. Goodbye. Goodbye.